Why are Christians supposed to be people of faith? We say that we are a people of faith. We're walking through the book of Genesis. It's all about faith. But why are Christians to be a people of faith? I mean, how does that even work? What's God's intention here as he calls us to have faith? Well, the answer is simply this. It's because our faith, when we exercise it, boasts in the faithfulness of God. I mean, if we were really going to throw ourselves by faith onto something, the strength of our faith is really dependent on the faithfulness of the thing that we're putting our faith in. And so why are Christians to be a people of faith? It's because God is our all-faithful God. Naturally so. If God is really who he says he is, as we looked in Genesis in chapters 1 to 11, we see so clearly that he is Yahweh over all. He's created all things, created us, his people, to be in a relationship with him. He speaks and things come into existence. When people go against him, there are consequences. But our great God is a faithful God, and in steadfast love he pursues sinners. So naturally, he calls people to believe on him and to throw ourselves at his feet in confession that he is who he says he is. Our all-faithful God who gets stuff done and who loves us. Christians are to live a life of faith. And our forefather, Abraham, was an example of this faith. Faith in God for who he is, for what he does, and what he promises he will do. And the most foundational promises in all of Genesis and in all of Scripture, in many ways, are found in Genesis chapters twelve or Genesis chapter twelve, verses one to three. Repeatedly, Scripture develops these themes and shows God's covenant faithfulness in fulfilling His promises and His word to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would be that a great multitude would come from him. So He promised people. He promised, too, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit a land. So there he promises a land. And then he even promises that Abraham, or one from Abraham's line, would be a blessing to the nations. So he promises a blessing. So people, land, and blessing. And it's very much appropriate, uh, given our passage today, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 25. Given this passage is a summary of what has gone on, really, or more like a, a, an ending cap to the story of Abraham. It's fitting to read Genesis chapter 25 in light of the promises in chapter 12. Now, basically, here we have Abraham's death. So it's just a record of Abraham's death. I mean, this guy that we've come to know, and this guy whom we've come to identify with, not only in his weaknesses but then also by God's grace and his strengths, we come to see that he is laid to rest. And you have there Abraham's death in the middle, and then on the two sides of it, you have two passages of long genealogies and names. And we're going to go, by God's grace, we're going to see how these things uh, apply and what the significance is to our lives even today as God is moving to bring about his purposes in the world. So again, we're going to look at Genesis 25 through the lens of the covenant promises to Abraham. The threefold blessing of people, 
land and that he would be a blessing to all of the nations. So let's just go ahead and start with looking at God's covenant promise of a people. God's covenant promise of a people. Look there, verses 1 to 11. I'll go ahead and read that. This is uh, Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Luimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward, to the east country. Now in Genesis chapters, chapter 12, verse 2, you can, if you want to, go ahead and flip back there. God promised that God would make Abraham, or Abram as he was known then, a great nation. So there, this promise goes out, and then something happens. And, and you see that going on there. The promise goes out, something happens. And at that point in time, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was 75 years old when he was called out to follow God. Then after waiting about 10 years, as timelines put it, still there was no child. There's no great nation for a number of reasons. Number one, he's 75 years old. How many of you all who might be nearing that age are thinking about having children? But not only that, they're barren. How do you build a nation on a people, a couple, who is barren? Then in Genesis 15, verse 4, God reminds him after all of this waiting. He reassures Abraham. Even though Abraham there is struggling with, with uh, doubt, he says, Your very own son shall be your heir. As numerous as the stars are in the sky, so shall your offspring be. So you would figure, right, at this point in time, after he's already waited a long time for a child, you would expect something is going to happen, but it doesn't. In God's perfect timing, he chooses for Abraham to have to wait. So he waits a total of 25 years from the time he was called out to that time, Isaac, when his son from Sarah would be born. But Isaac would not be the only one to bring about Abraham's many descendants. There were others in Abraham's line. I mean, very clearly from here on out, we're going to look at Isaac, no doubt. But God kind of backs up a little bit and allows us to see what else is going on. And there you see Abraham's uh, children from the wife named Keturah. Here Abraham takes a, uh, this wife Keturah whose name means enveloped in incense or spices. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not this happened after the death of Sarah or not. It might have happened while Sarah was still alive. Uh, thus, she's called a concubine there in verse 6. But imagine if you were writing an autobiography to give to your children. Right? You, you might not necessarily write everything in chronological order, and that's what we see going on here. You know, if you, might, if you, might, if you talk about, let's say... Um, a, the a certain theme that returns up again and again in your life, you might want to deal with it thematically while also dealing with your, your life chronologically. And so we see kind of both things are going on here. And Abraham, he dies in this passage, as we're going to see. And it's a, it's a fitting time to bring up Keturah, not because of Keturah's sake, but because of the children's sake. 
So this episode is very much driven by succession. Six children Kutura has. And then the list follows the lines of Jokshan, Didan, and Midian. And these children, they basically would spread out all over Arabia and be known as businessmen dealing in spices and gold. Now, of course, Isaac is the chosen one. But here you have this emphasis on everybody else and what they're doing while the focus remains on Isaac. So look there in verse 6. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Now, sometimes relatives can be of help. You guys probably know that. You experience many blessings of relatives. At other times, they might not be such great help as you too might experience this. Uh, Abraham has already experienced this with Lot, and so they had to part ways at a certain point in Genesis. So here too, protecting Isaac, he sends the children away. The sons of the concubines. So we can think of Hagar, who really what became Abraham's wife or concubine, you could say, really because Abraham and Sarah were not having faith. They were struggling to believe in God, yet God somehow redeems the situation to some degree. And probably something similar, was not really said there, is going on with Keturah. Look at verse 5. To Isaac, here again, he's focusing on the center stage. To Isaac, Abraham gave all he had. So already God is moving to build a multitude here. Keturah has a number of sons. We know that Isaac is going to have a son, and then from there they're going to have more and more sons. But here Moses, who authored Genesis, wants us to pause a little bit. And not only do we see a multitude stemming from Keturah, we also see there a multitude stemming from another one, Ishmael. So look there in verse 12. It says, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names, that the, son, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. But they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You guys remember Ishmael? We certainly haven't talked about him in quite some time. During the time when Abraham and Sarah were again struggling with this unbelief, severe unbelief, was God really going to do what he promised? Was he actually going to fulfill what he said? Abraham and Sarai come up with a grand plan for Abraham to have a baby with Sarah's servant Hagar. And so comes Ishmael. And here you have all of these names here, 12 names from Ishmael. And certain commentators, they say that Ishmael and his sons, they function as kind of like a parody of Abraham or eventually the 12 tribes that would come from Abraham's seed. Ishmael has earthly promises. Abraham has the spiritual promises. And the fact that Ishmael was growing in number was a direct fulfillment of God's promise to Hagar in Genesis 16.10 
There Hagar is in desperate situations, left to die in the desert, along with her son Ishmael. And he says there, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then the fact that he settled over his kinsmen, against his kinsmen, is also a fulfillment of the prophetic word of Genesis 16, verse 12. But again, you know, the way that this account is written allows us not only to watch center stage, right? Center stage is developing. Isaac, now he's married. Eventually he's going to have children. And eventually from those children, 12 tribes of Israel are established. And God is slowly moving to bring about his plans. That certainly is happening. But the way that this account is written, it allows us to back up and see the panoramic view of God's working in his almost entirety. In the background, God is building nations and peoples, and it is true that they don't have the, pro- the spiritual promises of salvation. They don't at this period of time. I mean, Ishmael and Hagar, right? They're only blessed insofar as they're going to have a great multitude. But here, God is multiplying these people, and he's working amongst them as well. And it's not that the Lord was multiplying these people just because... As in, oh yeah, you know what, these are the promises that I give to my people, and so we'll we'll just see what happens, I'm just going to fulfill them. It is not random. God multiplies these people for their future glory and salvation. So we we, we can read this genealogy and these lists of names and think like, oh my goodness, how am I supposed to do my devotions here at this point in time? But God, as he backs up and allows us to see a little bit all these different nations in its seed form, God is bringing about their future glory and salvation. Now we know that for, for, we know the future glory for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They possess, once again, the promises of salvation. But we know, too, that the nations that would come from Abraham across the board would be invited into this salvation if they turned from their sin and believed. So just like everybody, like us here as Christians, we repent of our sins and we believe That's how people are brought into salvation. But the same goes for all of these tribes. I mean, you ever wonder where these tribes show up in the rest of Scripture? The prophecy of Isaiah had to say this about the Messiah, and pay attention to who comes to worship him. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. It reads this, A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah All those from Sheba shall come. He's talking about those from Keturah specifically. It goes on. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Abraham did in fact send them away. We aren't said, we aren't told if that was a legitimate, good, caring thing to do. All we know is that it just simply happened. But in God's providence, as one commentator wrote, in God's plan, these sons were sent away that there might be a true home in the end to return to. So he's expanding here all of these different types of peoples. And we know without a doubt from Genesis chapter 12 that that, uh, the line from, from Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. At that point in time, there aren't very many nations, but the God here is working to grow them, sending them out across the world, spreading them. 
in order that they too would indeed have a home. It's interesting here that that Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 is referenced in all the Bibles that I checked is referenced when the wise men of Matthew chapter 2 go to bring fabulous gifts to the marvelous Savior. Right there, right, the wise men, they're bringing frankincense and myrrh and gold. And what's referenced is this verse here, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6. Now we don't really know who these wise men were. There's just not much information there. But the word, basically, if you want to boil it down, is magi. Now, we know Persia had magi, or wise men. But there is a tradition amongst the church fathers to say that these people actually came from Arabia. Because that's where these gifts originated from. And who is originating these gifts? It's Keturah and her children, right? Her name is enveloped in spices. And a lot of her children go on to be, to be businessmen in spices and incense and gold. At least church history shows that there is a possibility that these people, the wise men, that some of the most earliest folks to bring the praises to Christ and worship and fall down at his feet are sons of Keturah. Very interesting. What about the Ishmaelites? The Old Testament prophecies have something to say about their salvation in Christ too. It is true that at that point in time, they all they had was the earthly blessing of people. right? They weren't the ones to carry on the line and participate in salvation history in that sense. But yet, God here is working to one day bring about their salvation, that they too would be saved. Isaiah 42 verse 11. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voices, the villages of Kedar. The villages that Keter inhabits. This is at the time when the Messiah arrives. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. And then Isaiah 60 verse 7. It says there all the flocks of, flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Here, his house is beautified when the Ishmaelites are actually brought into salvation. Now, some people in America might have problems with that. Because it means that those of Muslim background will be coming to faith. I mean, the original Muslims traced their line to Ishmael. Now, of course, not everyone who comes from Ishmael would identify themselves as Muslim. But the term Ishmaelite certainly includes Muslims. So this means that God has planned and is planning the future glory and salvation of the peoples of the Middle East, the Arabs, and those of Muslim background. Just as we have read about God working in the past to bring the nations to Christ, so we see this today. I mean, what God started here, and even prior to Genesis chapter 25, what we see here, we see God's in seed form, Planting this great plan where Arab Muslims would be saved. We see this today. Did you guys know that because of the, the civil war in Syria, as well as the turmoil in the Middle East, thousands of Muslims are coming to faith, are presently converting to Christianity. And so what happens is because of war, people are displaced from their homes. They've got to flee their homes or they are driven from their homes. And what happens is that 
the Muslims, they go to certain refugee camps because of Muslim-on-Muslim violence. And of course, when they settle at these refugee camps, what's going on there is that they meet Christian workers who give them help, they give them shelter, they give them aid, they give them blankets, they give them food and love and the gospel. They read it and are born again. Thousands presently are being saved. This is God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, making his descendants as many as the stars and working to save sinners who turn from their sins and repent. So what we see here in seed form, God is reaping presently the salvation of sinners. That's the promise of people. The second promise that we turn to now is God's covenant promise of land. God's covenant promise of land. And this point will be much shorter than uh, the first. Genesis 25, 7. Let's go ahead and start there. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah and in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Obviously, he's been alive for a very long time, 175 years and this is what happens here. This death happens 35 years after Isaac marries Rebekah. And verses 7 to 8, the way that it's, it reads is it's actually very beautiful. It brings the Abrahamic saga to a close. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So there he breathes his last. He dies and he was gathered. Not specifically, not only to Sarah's bones here, but here we can think of all of those who believe, just like he does. And he was buried there in the land of Canaan. But, you know, this, this burial, this funeral here, it must have been quite an awkward one, wouldn't it? I mean, notice who buries him. It says that Isaac, the younger one, it's interesting there that Isaac is actually named first, even though there in that culture, Ishmael should have been named first as the, as the oldest son. But Isaac is mentioned first. Isaac, the, the, the younger son of Abraham that comes through Sarah. And then Ishmael is mentioned. This is Ishmael, Abraham's first son through Hagar. And together they bury Abraham. I mean, you should just imagine what maybe Ishmael or maybe what Isaac might have been thinking. You know, as they're laying their father into the grave, the brothers are planning, perhaps, to lay each other in the grave. Interestingly, we see here the two sons gathering to bury a father. We see this repeated with Esau and Jacob when they bury Isaac in Genesis chapter 35. So when he is buried in the land, he finally owns a piece of it. This is a glimmer, a little glimmer of the promise that comes in Genesis 17, verse 7. An expansion on the promise of land. It reads this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now get this. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. 
and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But yet, even though he owns a piece of it, really, this is a glimmer. I mean, if you were to own, if you were told, let's say, that you were going to possess all of the land of my sojourning, and yet all you're left left with is a burial plot, you certainly wouldn't think that, that the promises have been already, that, that the arrival, the great fulfillment has already arrived. This here is just a glimmer of it. I mean, what is it like to expect certain blessings, to yearn for something re- really good, right? To yearn for something and to expect certain blessings, but never see their earthly fulfillment. Must have been difficult at this. Not only that, or what makes this all the more encouraging for us when we are desiring certain blessings, but yet we never see the earthly fulfillment of them. It's encouraging to look here and see at verse 8, Abraham breathed his last, he died at a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. You get the sense there that Abraham really is dying in comfort, resting in faith in God. He dies at an old age. A good old age, an old man, full of years. You know, Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't paint the end of days of a person's life so picturesque. But I think here we're meant to zoom in on Abraham's faith once again, right before he dies, and we're told that he dies at a good old age. Old, happy Abraham. So the question is, well, how? I mean, you guys probably know what it's like to expect good things here on earth, to really want certain things. You know, I remember, uh, you know, I mean, my, my parents prayed that uh, I would be drawn out of this backslidden time. And it was, pre- it was a pretty severe backslidden time. Um, you know, they knew that I was doing all sorts of things and getting drunk. They knew that I was, you know, smoking marijuana. They knew I was smoking cigarettes. One time, you know, the judge even had to, had to call them in the middle of the night to tell me that they had me at jail. You know, what, what parent wants to hear that? And then also along with those desires, I mean, what parent doesn't want to see their child, a Christian parent, see their child grow up in the faith and mature in the faith and really lay hold to God and Christ, salvation? Some of you guys know what this is like. Children. Not walking with God, but choosing to rebel against Him. Maybe you desire so badly their safety, their trust, a good relationship. And this thing eats at you, maybe night after night after night. That, that, that's only children, right? And you can expand them. Maybe you've got brothers. Maybe you've got grandchildren. You want for them the same things. But you can expand the number of issues that might come in the challenge of life. Children. Maybe some of you guys are wrestling right now even to get pregnant. You sincerely desire these good things. And scripture says that, you know, a quiver full of children is a good thing. And yet you can't conceive. We can expand it even more and say, let's say, you know, you you desire to be married. You're pining after a relationship. And maybe even you look across the pew and you see people here who are wed, who have multiple children, even grandchildren. 
and you're just dying for a husband or a wife of your own. What's amazing here is that in those nights where you lie awake, you have the opportunity to have faith in God, not only for you to exercise faith, but for you to boast in the faithfulness of God. That's why God calls you to have faith in Him. Because He is the God who does it, who gets things done. The only one who can be trusted. The only one who you can bank on. And so Hebrews picks this up. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews. We've looked at it before in the life of Abraham. We can look at it again. It's so encouraging to see Abraham and Sarah's faith. Hebrews chapter 11. And the point here is to note what Abraham and Sarah are really trusting in. Look there, we'll just start at uh, verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Notice their faith and action go together. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Right, so he knows that he's going to receive an inheritance there in verse 8. And when he, and he went out not knowing where he was going, so he does not know the future. He just knows there he's banking on the promises of God that God is going to take care of him. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Now, that's interesting, right? He knows that he and his descendants are going to possess the land, yet it's called a foreign land. Not only that, though, but Abraham identifies himself as a sojourner and a foreigner in the land. You can look there in chapter 24 of Genesis. As in a foreign land, it says there in verse 9, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's looking to a different city than this earthly one. He's not necessarily looking to his earthly fulfillment, yet he trusts in God that God would do it. But he's looking to a heavenly city. It says there in verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful, who had promised. Isn't that fascinating? She's not trusting in the promise, or actually the fulfillment of the promise, ultimately, but she's trusting in him who is faithful, who had promised. He's with her. He's with him. Guiding them and taking care of them and loving them. Even, as we know, Sarah had to be buried not owning any piece of the land. Or at least she died not having owned any piece of the land. Verse 12, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as, in, as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, it says. In faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But look down there in 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. right? Not the one that they came from, not the one that they might be living in, not the one that they're buried in. But a heavenly one. Therefore, 
God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It's amazing there. God calls them out. He doesn't tell them where he's going. He tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a multitude, but they can't even have one child. Sarah dies not having owned any of Canaan, and now Abraham, though he does, though he owns a burial ground, he doesn't own any living space. He's still a sojourner, still an exile, going about the land of promise in tents that have no foundation. Of course, that's what a tent is. It doesn't have a foundation. It is, of course, true that God blesses Abraham in his lifetime. I mean, he does have a son. He has many sons. He does have lots of possessions on which his kingdom will be built. He manages to get in favor with those around him. He does own a burial site. But nevertheless, God calls him and sends him out with the expectation that Abraham would believe in God. He who is faithful. So again, we find ourselves in similar situations here. We've been called not to the similar type of call that Abraham was given, but yet we too know what our call is. We've been called to display the character of Christ in where, whatever we do and wherever we go. Whatever we do, wherever we go. And this is the revealed will of God, to display Christ wherever we go. Now many of you guys, no doubt, are being tested right now. You don't know where you will go, literally. I mean, some of you guys are facing the decision or, or actually the reality that you might live in this country or in another country. That's some people's what lies ahead here in the next couple months for some. Some of you are wondering where, whether you will go to grad school or which grad school you're going to go to, where you will be working. Others of you might wonder what will happen to my life in the next 10 to 15 years. What will happen to my children? These things are truly in the hands of God. But we should have all confidence and comfort knowing that they are because he is always at work, friends. Always at work. And so it is okay to be buried and to never having seen any earthly blessing that you might assign to be a blessing. Do you guys really believe that? That it is really okay in the hands of God to be buried and dead, never having seen earthly blessing that you might assign something to be blessing. But yet, like Abraham and Sarah, here they're able to be laid to rest, having seen certainly blessing. I mean, we as Christians know the blessing of salvation, praise God. We know the blessing of friendship. We know the blessing of community and family, praise God. We know without a doubt that we're going to be raised from the dead and that God is preparing for us an eternal city that has foundations in God himself. But yet we might still experience these types of trials. What an opportunity you have today, tonight, to boast in the faithfulness of God as you exercise your God-given faith. I mean, what does that tell all of your friends when you face difficult situations that though you might be stressed, you nevertheless trust in this God who fulfills all of his promises and all of his purposes will without doubt come to fulfill. You tell everybody that your God indeed is strong. And that's what's going on here with Abraham and Sarah. And we can just flip through the rest of scripture and know that, with, that God fulfills all of his promises. He fulfills his promises of people. He fulfills his promise of land. Or at least he's going to. And last we come to God's covenant promise 
that one from Abraham's line will be a blessing to the nations. This aspect is going to be spelled out in future weeks, but we're reminded of it here again as the focus shifts away from Abraham and is placed onto Isaac. Isaac is protected. The land there is protected as Abraham sends the others away. But not only that, though, you have Genesis 25, verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. You see that? The emphasis here is succession. God is passing on the torch, so to speak. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. But is Isaac the one who's going to bless the nations? Is Isaac the one who is going to bless the nations? The answer is actually no. Isaac will not be the one to bless the nations. But he's used to bring about the blessing to the nations. He's used to bring about the blessing to the nations. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's a very famous chapter here that recounts the genealogy of Jesus Christ with the emphasis talking about the theme of kingship. So anyone who is in this genealogy, they play a special place, right, in bringing about the Messiah, the chosen one, who will, in fact, be the blessing to all of the nations. And look there who's listed as the second name. First name, Abraham, was the father of Isaac. This is verse 2. The second name, obviously, is Isaac. Isaac here is imported and used by God's grace to be, to take part in bringing about the one who will save the nations. He's one person in a long line of people who bring about the blessing of Christ to the nations. And according to Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 3, we know that this blessing is Jesus. That the offspring who would bless the nation is Christ. So of course this blessing comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Man has gone his wayward way. God in his grace sends Christ to die on the cross for sins, to bear the punishment that sinners deserve so that we would be free, forgiven of our sins. All because of the substitutionary death of Christ where he takes upon himself the wrath that we ourselves deserved. That is the gospel. Isaac is not the blessing to the nations, but he's used to bring about the blessing to the nations. Now, folks, do you guys realize that you yourself are being used to bring this blessing throughout the nations? You yourself are being used to bring about the blessing throughout the nations. We aren't put in in Matthew chapter 1, but we are used to bring about the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations of free forgiveness. And the church is to go about fulfilling its God-given task. Christ is embraced again and again, as we mentioned, even right now amongst the Muslims, as the blessing to the nations. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In conclusion, it's it's an incredible promise given Abraham some 4,000 years ago. And it still matters so much. As we see the nations coming to faith through the blessing that is Christ, and as we, as the people of the nations, trust in Jesus and go not to a physical promised land, but to the land of heaven.
Of course, it would be the recipients of the blessings who would be trusting in a faithful God. We know that all those who believe in God for salvation have Abraham as their father of faith, and we know that the church is composed of exiles and strangers. And in some sense, we are wandering this earthly life with our eyes set on the heavenly. And we who are the nations attest and witness to the fact that Christ, through his shed blood, is the one to bless the nations. This gospel that we speak of, we are reminded of, and we celebrate again in the Lord's Supper. So if we can have the folks who are going to serve the Lord's Supper come forward, we're going to remember again the great and marvelous promises of God and the fact that He is a faithful God, marked by steadfast love. We celebrate the Lord's Supper just as Christ commanded His church through the breaking and eating of bread and the pouring and drinking of the fruit of the vine, we remember and recognize that Christ bore the wrath that we rightly deserved. Christ intended this Lord's Supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized believers who have placed their faith in the death, the resurrection, and the return of Christ. And so if you're visiting with us and you are a baptized believer and a member in good standing of another evangelical church, you are invited to take the Lord's Supper with us but if you are not a believer, we encourage you to continue to reflect on the truths that we've mentioned. That God is a faithful God and that he promises forgiveness to you even right now if you would repent of your sins and believe. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, though, you can simply let the elements, the bread and the juice, pass you by. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, remember the Apostle Paul's warning from 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the bread and cup are being distributed, take some time to examine yourself and have a time of silent confession of sin.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we have full and free forgiveness in the cross of Christ. And so knowing, Lord, that you promise to forgive those who come to you, so we do confess our sins, our sins that we have committed, the things that we have done, and the things that we have left undone. Lord Jesus, we know that you are many, and we even confess the things that we don't even realize, the areas in which we have sinned, the sins that we are not mindful of. Forgive us of these things, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that because of your broken body and your shed blood, you shower your grace upon those who turn to you. We glory in your name, and we confess that you are a faithful God, faithful to save, faithful to love, faithful in your mercy, even faithful in your judgment and in your righteousness. In your name we pray, amen. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us eat and drink, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. As the music team comes up, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you great praise and recognition that you are our faithful God. And you, Lord, according to your word, remain faithful even when we are unfaithful. Lord, we pray that you would help us know your great mercies and your great love through the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that your promises to save sinners, Lord, that those, that those never fail. But no matter how long it takes, Lord, you are working to save your people and you promise us that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So, Lord, may we boast in you alone and no one else. In your name we pray. Amen.